This special crossover episode of A Hungry Society and Food Without Borders is brought to you by TD Bank. Learn more about TD Bank's commitment to driving positive change through working collaborations that enrich the lives of our customers and communities across the diverse communities we serve at tdbank.com. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, I know a lot of you already, but um, in case we haven't met yet, my name's Katie Mosman-Wadler. I am the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, and we are so pleased to be able to present this event tonight, and especially to have this beautiful weather and this beautiful rooftop. Um, So really glad to see all of your faces and looking forward to getting started. Um, I just wanted to express our gratitude tonight to 100 Bogart for the beautiful space. I also just wanted to give a shout out to our food and drink sponsors. You've already been enjoying some great beer from Fifth Hammer Brewing Company, also from um, the Brooklyn Brewery. So we are grateful to them. And uh, also, after the talk, we're going to enjoy some snacks uh, from Samosa Shack, Oasis Jima Juice Bar, and Eastwind Snack Shop. And um, it's also my pleasure to thank TD Bank, um, who came through and made it possible for us to make this a free event tonight. So we're incredibly grateful to TD Bank for their support. And at this point, um, it's my pleasure to introduce our good friend, Stephen Garibel from TD Bank to say a few words. And then we're gonna hand it over to the moderators of tonight's panel. We have Sari Kamen who hosts um, Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network and Korsha Wilson of A Hungry Society. So um, Stephen, if you'd like to come on up and then we'll get started with changing the conversation. Thank you all. Well, thank you guys. Now, this is a, an event that a banker really wants to come to on a weeknight. Um, you know, beautiful weather, and we've worked really closely with Heritage um, through the past couple of years, and we really enjoy, um, especially an event like this, um, diversity and inclusion is really important to an organization like TD, and there are so many programs out there for business owners that are minority woman-owned businesses, um, LGBT businesses, that we can help connect you with. And we have two partners with us here today. Um, We have Ms. London from the New York City Small Business Services and the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce, which is right down in Brooklyn. And there are so many programs that they can connect you to. And they'll get you certified so you can get the supplier diversity contracts. And we also have one of our TD Bank employees who is a volunteer at the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, the New York chapter, uh, Barton Jackson, who's here. And they can help get you certified as an LGBTE business, which is another way to learn more about getting supplier diversity contracts. So, you know, you guys are going to hear a lot of great things tonight from our on-air personalities. And we really want to help you guys get certified and get access to resources that are out there in this city to help grow your businesses. So I will turn it over to our sponsors tonight. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the live crossover taping of Food Without Borders and A Hungry Society. I'm so excited for this. I feel like we started talking about this like a month and a half ago, two months ago, and it's like, I feel like I blinked and it's here. So, yes. Yeah. (laughs) So basically this started, um, Sarah and I met at an event and we started talking about people that we knew and we realized that we had a lot of guest crossover People who had been guests on her show were guests on my show, too. Um, And when we thought about it, uh, Food Without Borders 
celebrates immigrant contributions to our food scene in our country. And my show is all about celebrating and highlighting the diverse aspects of our food culture. So it just made sense for us to have an event together. Yeah, and we both worked in restaurants for a very, very long time and yeah. have, uh, I think, mutual admiration for each other's work. Yeah, so... I'm a fan. <laughs> same. Um, so over Oysters and Wine, we dreamt up a panel. Uh, shout out to Zadie's shout Oyster to Bar Zadies. downtown. Um, <laughs> uh, and we dreamt up a panel of these four lovely people that you see in between us. Um, so we're going to do some quick intros to them. Um, immediately next to me is Yemi Amu, the co-founder of Oko, Oko Farms, which is the largest and oldest aquaponics farm in Brooklyn. Um, she's brilliant. And um, in addition to being an expert on farming, she's also very committed to education and education of children in the neighborhood and in the city. Next to her, we have Mayuk Sen, um, who since being on my show is now a James Beard award-winning writer. Nope. Yeah. Um, And he's written for a number of publications. Um, Most recently, he was on staff at Munchies, which is a Vice culture website. Um, But he's also written for Pitchfork, Fader, Vulture. We're all, I mean, all over the The place. The New York York Times. Times. Yes. The New Yorker. The New Yorker. Yeah, Yeah. all over the place, yeah. Go on. (laughs) So Sari's going to introduce her guest. Yeah, I have, um, right next to me is Leah She and I met at the uh, NYU Food Studies program and has been amazingly helpful. Nope, nothing? Okay. Um, And supportive working... Sure, I'll switch with you. Um, Working uh, with me on Food Without Borders. She's a freelance writer based in Brooklyn, and her work has been in Jerry Mag. We have Lucas in the audience here. Um, Sever, Edible, and more. And her expertise is grounded in connections between food, gender, social justice, and veganism. Um, and we also have the lovely Vani Williams, Yvonne. She's a first-generation Ghanaian-American. She's the co-founder of The Black Forks, which is a website dedicated to exploring food and culture through the black lens. She started in PR, in food media, and she was frustrated with the lack of diversity that she found in... Uh, food media, so she decided to take it upon herself to start at the Black Forks and change the conversation, which is why she's here with us tonight. She's working on a new lifestyle website for women of color with a special focus on food and culture, and look out for that this summer. All right, so we're just going to jump right in. Um, So this question, I think, is for everybody. So this year's James Beard Awards, Eduardo... Jordan was the first black chef to win Best New Restaurant, and Michael Twitty was the first black author to win Book of the Year. An unprecedented number of women and people of color won awards, which caused many people to say, finally. So kind of a two-part question. Do the James Beard Awards signal that there's finally a shift in, in terms of who's getting recognized for the culinary talents, or is that just a flash in the pan, possibly a response to the election? And then I guess the second part is like, how much do awards actually matter? And I also think it's worth noting that the 50 best restaurants list, um, which just was released to quote Eater, 
was 50% European, shockingly expensive, inexcusably male, and with strong neocolonialist overtones. So I guess whoever wants to kick that off. <laughs> Mayuk, why don't you start? Yeah. Mayuk, sure. take that. Yeah, yeah. Um, as someone who is a beneficiary of the visibility that the Beard Awards offer or whatever, um, I will say that I'm pretty suspicious of any narratives that suggest progress. You know, um, I think that I, in my year and a half of being a food writer, I've seen too many companies be praised for doing the bare minimum and just saying that they care a lot about people of color and diverse voices, quote unquote, in a slightly fetishistic way. And I fear that this was a flash in the pan moment. I think that it's really crucial right now what happens next and who is holding the Beard Foundation accountable for continuing to support marginalized voices and also the kinds of marginalized voices who are not just writing for white audiences mostly. Um, I think that one thing that I feared a lot um, after my win is that I wrote the kind of piece that a lot of white liberals really would eat up and love. And I, that's kind of like the exact kind of writer I never want to become, just writing for white audiences like that. So I hope people hold them accountable is what I'm saying. Yeah, I can totally uh, echo what you're, what you're saying. Um, so I wrote a piece for Eater that was about uh, black excellence at this year's James Beard Awards. And I was worried about the same thing of it being too congratulatory. Like I wanted to be very clear that what was exciting to me is what comes next. And hopefully it opens doors for other chefs of color to cook the food that they wanna cook and on their own terms. Um, but I was hesitant to even write it because I didn't want it to be seen as me giving like a gold star for acknowledging black people. Um, so the next question actually is for you too, Mayuk. Um, you hadn't, oh, absolutely. I was just gonna add that like, I think when like change really starts to shift, like we see it in the leadership. And like, I think right now, I mean, I don't know everyone who's like in a senior position at the James Beard Foundation, but I, from what I do know, it's like pretty male and pretty white. And so I think lasting change happens when you actually, they start employing those people that are gonna, are like gonna be able to call that out and say, bring in the people we need to. And um, yeah, it won't just be this trendy moment, but it'll be lasting change because you'll have the people there that would speak up against it if it were to go back to the way it was, which is very white and male. Who's handing out the awards? And I think that was like the issue with the 50 best restaurant list. If you're handing out awards to people and it's just a reflection of the committee, I mean, that's, that's an issue. All right, um, yeah, go ahead. Um, so speaking of the awards, uh, you had an interesting interaction at uh, that night that you won, Mayuk. Uh, do you want to share that story? Sure. Uh, so again, best night of my life, or I didn't say that yet, but it was the best night of my life. In spite of that, there was um, one moment at the awards where a committee member came up to me. And, you know, by that point, we're all, like, eight wine glasses in, just, like, super sloshed, whatever. And But basically, this guy came up to me and was like, oh, my you, you know, I'm a committee member. I'm such a fan of your work. Like, I was so happy when your name was read out as one of the nominees. I really loved your profile of Edna Lewis. And I was like... <sighs> 
I didn't profile Edna Lewis. Like, what are you talking about? Because the piece that I was nominated for was a piece in Food 52 on Princess Pamela, um, who was a soul food restaurateur who went missing two decades ago. And kind of similar to Edna Lewis, she was another black woman who was forgotten by a lot of mainstream food culture and not canonized in the same way we see Julia Child and Marcella, et cetera, um, those kinds of names. But I was just really, I mean, this guy was white, I, I should obviously add. Um, and it that whole moment, you know, I didn't say anything. I was like, thanks, you know. Uh, maybe I was just like too drunk, I have no idea. But basically, um, I it was a confirmation of my biggest fears about the night, which is that it was adding up to kind of like a flash in the pan moment where a lot of, liberals or liberal thinking people were saying, oh my gosh, we're great. We're lifting up voices that need to be heard. You know, 2018 is the time that this needs to happen. And we've got this brown queer writer writing about this black woman. Like, you know, and this person was conflating Edna Lewis with Princess Pamela, um, their mind. And that was just so offensive to me on so many levels, you know. And I know that I want to be charitable in my thinking and, you know, account for the fact that, you know, some people slip up, but it was a very telling moment, and it made me think, like, huh, you know, like, what's really behind my win, you know, to be totally cynical about it, you know? And that's why I think this year I'm very determined to make sure that what I'm writing writing is not, I guess, I don't know, making those kinds of people feel really good about themselves and their own politics. I really want to use my platform now to challenge people and the way that they think about food culture, because... I, I've realized that it doesn't veer very further, much further than uh, like barely left of center. So, can I ask a question? Uh, just kind of honing in on like a little point that you made there, and I said this to you when we hung out last time. Um, as far as like white people trying to lift up people of color and and amplify their voices, as a white person who does that, I mean there there is some self consciousness that comes out of doing that, and I am always trying to navigate like the best way to do that in a way that doesn't feel self-indulgent or like I'm trying to pat myself on the back and would love to hear from you guys like what advice <laughs> not that like I need you know it's not about me obviously um but like what what do you feel are like the most sort of like thoughtful ways to go about that at this point like when you see other people who are just doing it that in a way that it doesn't feel good uh, that's a really good question. I, I think that it all really comes down to intent. And I think if you walk the walk and talk the talk, if you really want to lift up voices of color, it'll show. But I think if you're just doing it to make yourself feel good, like, hey, I'm this white liberal, pat on my back, you know, I'm doing such a good job elevating black and brown and LGBTQ voices, then that also shows as well. I think people can tell when you're really about that life, like you're really about lifting up people of color versus, okay, I'm just doing this to make myself feel good. Um, yeah, I'm just going to add to that. I, I, also, there's this, like, I'm lifting up a person of color. Like, we're not an other. We're human beings, right? So you would want to lift us the way you would lift any other human being, or you would want another human being to lift you up. I think sometimes we have these conversations, and it's like an other. Like, yeah, I'm a privileged white person, but I'm also a human being. And this person is also a human being. So it's not just about, like, how, what can I do in the right way to make this, 
you know, queer person feel better or this like black person feel better. But as a human being, how would I want to be treated? I think that that's sometimes missing from these conversations where it's like you're you have a position of privilege, but you're not any better than the next person and you should have compassion for people and you should be coming from a place of compassion and putting yourself in that person's shoes. Um, because it does make me personally feel a little bit uncomfortable. It feels patronizing sometimes where you feel like, you know, you're in this like savior position and no one wants to feel that way. And it can often come out like that. But I think when you're coming from a human to human perspective and you're starting with a place of compassion and intent, it shows. Leah, what do you think? Well, I think that I don't know. I think it shows when you're just trying to check the box. Like, I totally agree with what you're saying, Yemi. Like, um, but I think when you take the time to, like, get to know someone, like, actually have read their work, if you're going to ask them to be on your panel, know how to pronounce their name, like, know what their background is, don't conflate them with maybe even the thing that they write about. Like, recognize them as an individual and don't just turn to them for um, as, as a resource, as a writer, or as a speaker, or as a, an expert, just when it's convenient, or when it's like Pride Month, or when it's like, oh, we're talking about race now, or like, we're talking about immigrants now, you know, like, don't just turn to them when it's trendy, and, and you're obviously just doing it to get your traffic up, like, do it when, do it all the time, like, always try to, like, and diversify is almost a dirty word now, but it's like, just try to always make sure it's like a representative voice at all times, not when it's, um, you know, going to be like clickbaity and like, you know, a hashtag that's trending. Vani, you started Black Forks because you saw a lack of diversity in food media. Do you think anything's changed, improved since you started? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, when I first started the Black Forks around about three years ago, I... It was just a really, really, it was really hard to find other people of color who were talking about food. And it's not like these people did not exist. You just couldn't find them. There was little to no visibility. Now, do I think it's better? In some ways, yes. But I think we have to be really careful about how we define diversity. You know, if we say, hey, here's a black person, you know, here's a white person, here's an Asian person. Oh, throw in Hispanic. And that's diversity. That's not diversity. You know, that's tokenism. I think... When I think about diversity, in my head, there is no such thing as too much diversity. You know, you can't have too many people of color writing about food. Because when we think about culture and race, there are so many subcultures and subcultures and layers and layers and layers. And within all those layers, there are stories to be told. Within all of those little layers, it's just like, our work is never done. We're just hitting the tip of the iceberg. So... I think, yes, we do have a lot more visibility, but there's still so many more stories that need to be told within the food landscape. So, Leah, you've written about and talked about ecofeminism, and I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit to that and why that matters to you and why you, why you write about that. Okay, um, disclaimer, I have never been published about ecofeminism yet, but I hope to. Um, but yeah, a few Some editors out there, I think. <laughs> but um, a few years ago, I while I was at NYU, I did a project on um, kind of like ecofeminism and agriculture, specifically global like agriculture. Um, and for those of you who don't know, like ecofeminism 
ecofeminism is kind of a way to look at like environmental issues within a feminist lens that specifically like is um, kind of criticizing the way the patriarchy and like in capitalistic patriarchy uh, systems of power like um, exploit the environment and in similar ways that like women and animals and like people of color are exploited. So kind of like looking at it all within the same framework because um, sometimes that gets left out. So anyway, I was, because I'm vegan and I'm very interested in um, kind of like looking at systems of exploitation and how those are connected, I um, thought it would be really interesting to look at agriculture. And so like there was kind of this trend of, um, you know, people talking about like female farmers in the US and it was like, well actually like most of our food is coming from somewhere else and most of it is harvested by like women of color and um, like what's happening there. Like, and so it basically what I found was um, kind of like this, these, you know, this time poverty and maybe this is something a lot of people know about, but like a lot of female farmers are farming on small patches of land. It's not like the huge, you know, um, you know, thousands of acres that we have here and they're growing food that people actually eat, not food that um, other animals eat. And um, they're sometimes considered not like farmers because their labor is divided between their, um, their actual farming and then domestic tasks that they're still held responsible for. And of course this happens here too, right? Um, and so basically when like, you know, the UN and like um, the FAO, they're, you know, kind of counting and measuring and doing their statistical research, they're not always taking into account like this invisible labor and this like time poverty. And they're not really like giving that credit. And we do that here too, because domestic labor is kind of invisible and we don't kind of give it a price tag. It's, and we don't um, appreciate the way that female farmers versus a lot of male farmers will reinvest uh, the money that they earn into their children going to school, into their local communities, rather than a lot of the male farmers would invest in machinery, in outputs, in switching to export crops. And so they were kind of like, not as beneficial methods of farming as what the women were doing, but that was also kind of not being accounted for. Sorry, that's a long rant. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, so this question, like this follow-up question is for you and Yemi. Do you think food media does a good job of covering agriculture and the different challenges that women and people of color face in the agriculture world? Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, I'll just speaking from my own experience. Um, usually, when, well, I've had like two or three different specific experiences where my farm has been covered and the work that I've been doing has been covered. And then I've also been featured along with um, um, other people who do similar work but are working in, you know, growing food in warehouses and they're doing ag tech. Um, and the language used to describe my work is very different from the language that's used to describe their work. Um, How so? Well, like they're high tech. Um, Wall Street Journal in particular featured myself and two other companies and called me ragtag. Charmingly ragtag was the description for my work. And this is after I'd spent time with the reporter telling her specifically that I'm very wary of press um, because I don't like the way that press describes me or my work. So like women who do farming, or especially in urban farming, because that's what I know, we're referred to as like community gardeners. There's nothing wrong with community gardening. Community gardening literally is the, is the reason why we have 
the urban farming movement um, in New York right now, but there's a condescending way. Like the men, white men, especially young startup, are doing the business of farming. They're providing food for the future, you know, like they're the ones that are gonna feed us in the future, and this is, you know, how we're gonna be eating in the future. Whereas the rest of us that are growing like real food that people are eating right now. Uh, we don't, you know, we're ragtag and it's community gardening and it's not sustainable. And um, none of the people in the ag tech world growing food in warehouses have actually proven any sustainability, right? But um, who's gonna get like the $200 million investment after you read an article like that, you know? So yeah, no, media does So those articles job. have real world Impact. consequences, yeah. yeah. Leah? Oh. <laughs> I mean, thinking about that, I mean, that might be the writer. It also might be the editors. No offense to a lot. Of, there's so many great editors. A lot of editors will go in and just throw in, like, the worst cliche, like, tagline or a, a term like that. So who knows who it was. But, yeah, that's, like, a big problem of not valuing even, like, farm workers versus a farmer. That's a big problem, too, in data, like, collection like farm workers are basically nobody like they're not their names aren't counted they're you know and so this idea of ownership and land ownership which not everyone can do and that's a big problem in giving like who gets who gets counted and who gets like praised for doing some great thing because they're just a a farm worker or they're just a a gardener or just like an urban gardener when in fact that's like an incredible um job that's really meeting needs yeah, I mean, because you spoke a little bit about your work with Oka Farms. What can consumers do to help make it a more equitable system? Stop seeing yourself as consumers <laughs> and being, like, actively engaged. Like, you, you're citizens, right? You can't, um, when you see yourself as a consumer, you kind of create uh, this barrier between yourself and producers. You're a citizen. The people who grow food for you are citizens. The people who grow food for you um, have the work that they do actually directly impacts your health. It um, di directly impacts like so many aspects. I mean, I think you can't name one aspect of your life that food does not touch in some way or another, and we all eat. Um, so being more active and finding out, like, learn about the farm bill. Like, how many people know what the farm bill is? Good. <laughs> and talk about the farm bill, and more people should know about the farm bill, and be more actively involved. Um, and also, like, how do I put this? We are in, like, a really trendy, everyone gets really trendy, like, organic is trendy, or kale is trendy, or local is trendy, um, and we really need to get like out of that way of thinking um, and really start thinking more holistically about not just like where your food is coming from, but policies that impact where your food is coming from. Start thinking about um, farm labor. Farm labor is so important. There's all this stuff about immigration that's going on right now. Um, it also directly impacts food, right? Because like these are people, so many people come into this country and um, just to like pick food on the farm for us or to grow food for us. Like learning about immigrant rights is also learning about your food and who grows it and how it gets to you. So seeing yourself as, as a citizen, I think, is more important than seeing yourself as a consumer. That's amazing.
This special crossover episode of A Hungry Society and Food Without Borders is brought to you by TD Bank, offering small business resources and supplier diversity programs supporting LGBT, minority, and women-owned businesses and enterprises. Diversity is a key contributor to success in the competitive global marketplace, and TD Bank's supplier diversity program is necessary to achieving the goal of being the better bank. Learn more at tdbank.com. So we're going to switch gears a little bit uh, to talking about the restaurant world. Um, I mean, everybody here, I'm sure, is aware of all of the reports um, from last year and still ongoing now um, of uh, terrible behavior and sexual harassment um, by many high-profile chefs. Um, last week, the Spotted Pig made a lot of news uh, with Gabriel Hamilton deciding to become a partner in the Spotted Pig. Um, how do we all feel about that? Who, who wants to take that? <laughs> yeah, Vani, you can start. <laughs> wow, I have so many thoughts. None of them are good. Um, my first thought is I don't like how she's comparing herself to Jose Andres and his relief efforts in Puerto Rico and beyond. Um, saving a sexual predator is not the same as delivering like millions of meals to people who are displaced from natural disasters, number one. So like, yes. don't say that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, she, to paraphrase, I think she said that she's not looking for like our approval, affirmation or whatever, which is fine because none of us are giving it to her anyway. Um, she doesn't but, get our dollars either. Oh, definitely not. Hell no. <laughs> I can get burgers somewhere else. But um, I, I don't know. I, I get really angry when I hear stuff like that because the people of Puerto Rico did not ask for that natural disaster to happen. Ken Friedman put that on himself by being a sexual predator and a violator and by using his power to take away other people's power and agency. So therefore, he should pay the price for it. Like, if you grope women, if you harass women at a workplace where people are trying to make their money and pay bills, you should be punished for it. Like, you should not get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, no. So with her doing that, like, she gets no respect from me and I hope from, not from a lot of other people either, and she should get the backlash because why are you helping out an, a violator? You're basically condoning his behavior. It, um, it felt like another step in this like, narrative that's kind of being created about like redemption for these men or people who have done these things. And how, how do we feel about that word even coming into the press about these men? Well, I, I personally hate that every article is like, the disgraced man, the disgraced restaurateur. And it's like, can we pick another word also? Because like, they're kind of a criminal. It's not like they lost their respect, like this thing happened to them, you know, like they did a thing or multiple things. Um, and it's also really... I mean, I guess this is why we're kind of seeing how important it is to really be critical of everyone because these are queer women. Like, these are queer white women. And this is the unfortunate part where, like, you know, just like just because you're a minority maybe in one aspect, if you have all this privilege in the other way, like, like 
you're not helping anyone. And obviously a very colonial kind of privilege in these comments, these comparisons. And it was really disgusting for me to read. Like she continuously um, compares it to marriage and relationships. The whole like second marriage comment, the whole like getting in bed with the devil. It's like he's like a sexual predator and you're making uh, like analogies about marriage and bed, all very kind of sexualized like... um, you know, metaphors, and I guess it just goes to show, like, the the privilege of whiteness is really disgusting, and it really corrupts people's minds to think. And also, like, the nepotism, like she says, this is my dear friend, my dear friend Ken. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's when you need to really uh, be critical of, like, who are people's, like, where are people's alliances and their biases? Like, Like, regardless of, she should be looking out for other women, but this is her dear friend Ken. Do we need to concern ourselves with caring about how they're doing? I don't think so, but <laughs> I will say that, you know, for every report on Batali and Friedman that was describing them with the language of redemption and describing them passively as if something awful had happened to them, I was really happy to see, at least with the Friedman stuff and Gabriel Hamilton stuff last week, to see places like Eater, these mainstream publications with a lot of clout and power, at least, you know, asking her very critical questions and running those pieces, you know? I, it felt like a really, like, I don't know. I, I'm very rarely hopeful, especially when it comes to mainstream food media outlets, but I will say I was kind of hopeful that to see a lot of um, journalists doing their job, really, and not doing PR for these, you know, allegedly terrible men. I think they're terrible, but I'll say allegedly because I'm a journalist. Um, but um, I... Yeah, it, it felt, yeah, well, um, yeah, it felt nice to, like, see everyone in unison just kind of, you know, shaking with the same rage that I was shaking with, like, when I read all this stuff happening when that time story first broke, you know? Yeah, me, what do you think? Um, I think before we can talk about redemption, like, have any of these men actually, like, owned up to what they've done? Are they doing anything to show that there is like real remorse? I don't think we can talk about redemption until these people like actually are doing work to show that they've learned from their mistake and have owned up to, um, have owned up to all of the terrible acts. I, I don't see where redemption fits in until that. There is no ownership. Um, it just sounds like people are protecting them because they're famous or they're men, you know. I agree with that. Apology, an apology is not a uh, redemption at all. Like, what are you actually doing to make yourself a better person so you don't do that again? I think for me personally, as someone who writes articles and interviews chefs, um, for me, it's not chasing that spotlight per se but who's in the shadows. It's about empowering them and writing about them instead of trying to chase who's on a, on a list. Yeah, I, I was disappointed to see Kim Severson's story in the New York Times uh, a little while back about Mario Batali and um, the possibility of redemption, even if it was sort of a agnostic piece. I, I'm just sick of giving these men airtime. It's like they made these decisions they're garbage people. Let's talk about some women and people of color who are like doing real good and like let's give them the front page of the New York Times food section. We'll move on. Yes, uh, I agree. I was just... 
I was going to say that um, I, I think that more publications just need to acknowledge the fact that giving certain subjects real estate at all is an editorial decision in itself. And, you know, even like, I guess, I don't know, professing to or wanting to show these uh, subjects in like an even keeled way is just like, you know, in the age of Twitter and everything, that's just not going to play well. And that it's just not sustainable whatsoever. And it's doing no one any good. There are other restaurants. Also, Keith, sorry, redact that from my quotes. <laughs> He's so unimportant to me, I can't even remember his name. Um, but yeah, like the way people wrote about the Spotted Pig, like there are so many other places to like support. This is not the only restaurant. Like it's okay if it dies, it should die. <laughs> where will we all eat know, if right? the Spotted Pig we closes find a burger in, New York. in Manhattan? Where are we going to get a burger? Yeah. Yeah. It's where will the actors eat and do drugs? This is the real problem. <laughs> Uh, so in each of your respective fields, and you can answer this individually, like what are some changes that you hope to see moving forward? When will you start with Yummy? Um, I would just like to see more people who are doing the work on the ground being highlighted. There's a lot of great work that's happening, especially around um, food and farming and agriculture. Uh, and most of the people who do the work don't get um, the respect or the attention that they deserve. And I would love to see more of that instead of like, oh, this new person is doing this new thing that's going to save the world sometime in the future. Um, let's like respect people who are doing work now, uh, especially women. There are a lot of women who do work, uh, you know, um, like you were saying earlier, most farmers in this country are also women. Like the people who are picking your tomatoes are women. Um, and they're being harassed on the field too, you know? Um, but just like more attention on people who are less attention on those who are like misbehaving or who are the shiny people um, and more attention on people who are actually on the ground moving the needle forward. I would love to see more of that. Um. I will say within food media, um, you know, so I was full-time staff at both Food 52 and Munchies. And I think after both of those experiences, well, the two things really. First, I, and Leah kind of intimated at this, but like, I think that we need to, or people need to stop pretending that white women are diversity. It's completely a ridiculous notion. And, you know, there are some like... <laughs> There's, there's some food websites, you know, that have put out letters about how much they want to diversify. And, you know, even in those letters, if you see, you can see paragraphs that are like, you know, we're mostly women, so it's not, like, totally uh, accurate to say that we're not diverse. Like, no, you're all white women. Like, stop pretending that you guys are doing, like, your jobs, first of all. Second, I would really like to see more retention of, um, and like more media companies focus on retaining talent of color. Um, I think in both of my experiences, I mean, the reason why I left, you know, these full-time staff jobs is because I thought it was just too exhausting for me to, you know, enter with this mission of wanting to change some corrosively white, you know, system from the inside and disrupt it as much as possible only for whatever kind of work I felt like I did do, kind of like be walked back on and, marginalized even within my workplace. Um, I think that there's a lot of talk within food media, especially post November 9th, 2016, about hiring writers of color and diversifying staffs, but they don't actually talk about how long these this talent of color actually stays at these companies. So I really want to see companies invest in retaining this talent. 
Yeah, just to piggyback off of what you said in Yemi and Mayuk as well, I think visibility is really important. It has a right of color. It has someone who personally does not write for a white audience. I feel like a lot of times, even when you are a person of color and you are writing, you are writing for a white audience. I would love to see writers write for different audiences. I would love to see more writers of color actually out there in these big food publications. Like I know you're out here and you are, and you are Tuli and Mayuk as well. And yes, this is great that we have this panel here, but I would just love to see more visibility. I feel like I go on Twitter and there's so many writers of color that are writing so much amazing work. And I'm just like, why isn't this anywhere else? Like, why is this contained within this little social media platform? Why is it not being broadcast everywhere? I would love to see more representation across the color spectrum in terms of writers of color. And I think in order to make that happen, which is my kind of like, if I had a wish, it would be a complete overhaul of the gatekeepers. Like that is how people get a platform, right? And I mean, this panel is great because like you actually know who your panelists are and you like made sure that it was like, a, you know, it would be different perspectives and different backgrounds. And it's really frustrating both in food media, but also like in academic panels and like other forms where it's this like set of expertise and someone chose those people to represent a certain topic or a certain issue. Those people making those decisions don't always have any idea what they're doing and, and they're not actually invested in the thing that they're supposed to be and they've had that place just because of the color of their skin or their gender or just time you know and I would love to see that change where either people who inhabit those positions are f absolutely forced into actually read food writers like read the people you want to hire or just be replaced by someone who will do the job really well um and really eliminate kind of just, yeah, this prevalence of of whiteness in places. Like I recently judged like a vegan burger competition and um, it was all white people. And like, I, I felt bad. Like I was like, I should have asked. I should have asked who was gonna be on that panel of judges to make sure that this isn't what happened. Because when I got there, I was absolutely embarrassed and mortified. And so it's also like people who do have privilege asking questions and remembering to like ask the question who else is on this panel or who else have you accepted pitches from and who else is on your staff like being kind of taking it on ourselves to make sure that if we're standing in the place of someone else who is you know being left out or being ignored just because of their sexuality or of the color of their skin like we step aside because we could probably you know yeah we could all benefit from that. I was going to snap, but it's hard to <laughs> balance all of this. <laughs> um, so Mayuk and Vani, this is open to everyone, um, but all of us here, I'm assuming, read food media. What can readers do to support a more diverse landscape? Um, it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Emmy, about not looking at yourself as a consumer. I think you have to look at yourself as a participant in food media. I feel like publications like Food 52, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, they're writing for eyeballs, right? They're writing for attention. If they see that people are interested in stories from people of color, then they're going to hire more staff and they're going to write about those things. So I feel like we're in an age where we have social media, right? If I wanted to, I don't know, slide in the DMs of the food, you know, the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine, I can do that. You know, is he going to respond to me? Probably not, but I have that option. So I feel like having that option is good and we should use that. 
And if enough people demand stories from people of color and demand stories that are outside of the quote unquote norm of what we see in food media, then we may start to see some changes. Yeah, I will say that um, food media feels a little archaic sometimes because it is so dependent on reader comments in ways that I think a lot of other aspects of media aren't. And, you know, I, you, for me, that's been like historically terrible because I've had to deal with, you know, racist comments and shit. But, um, or, excuse me. Um, oh, no, we. We encourage that on my podcast. Okay, wonderful. Curse as much as you want. Sorry, excuse my language. Um, But, you know, um, I think that you understand what power you have as a reader because I think that if... if enough editors get clued into the fact that, you know, readers are really angry that they just see the same run-of-the-mill kind of content and stories, you know, being shuffled around by these publications that have a lot of influence and power, that it's going to affect their bottom line. Because right now, like, we're in a terrible media climate where, you know, (laughs) every single, like, media company feels like it's on its last legs. And a lot of these food media companies, I bet, are willing... or are looking to sell right now. And the way to sell is to boost numbers. And the way to boost numbers is to run fewer and fewer pieces about cultural appropriation, for example, or anything that could vaguely piss off, you know, a Deborah in Wisconsin. And what readers need to do is tell these people who are in charge and have a lot of power, many of whom are white, that that's not okay and that there is this hunger and craving for, sorry to evoke the like food metaphor or whatever, but um, there is this like desire to read stories that are, you know, don't belong in like, are, are from 1981 basically in terms of their politics. Can I add something? I would just say like, I think especially for us who are, you know, more liberal, uh, left of center, um, like there's a tendency to really be loud when we're angry about something, when we don't like something, but like a lot of publications, they want traffic. They're looking at the numbers and a lot of those stories that do really well will then get pulled to be in print maybe or get elevated. And like, then those writers will be, you know, called upon or assigned, you know, jobs or, you know, assigned, uh, pieces. And so like, if you like a story, share it, like talk about it, like tweet about it. It really does help just to, to show that like you're celebrating something. It's, it's great to be pissed off also, but like, um, that's really important. And yeah, publications look for that and that's how they maybe choose like what writers they're gonna, you know, assign roles to in the future. I want to add to that. Um, also diversify what you read. Right, like Vani was just saying that there's so many great writers of color that are on the um, on Twitter. Read their work, like find out. You know, I think we're like all reading the same things all the time. Like find out who else is out there and send traffic their way and share their work as well. Um, I, you know, like maybe we won't all get on those platforms, but maybe we can support the platforms of, that are currently exist that people are creating. Um, so yeah, diversify. Find out what other what other platforms they are, where people are like people of color, where people are writing, or women are writing, or doing other types of work, and learn about them. Uh, we might have we might have covered this already, but I mean, any final thoughts about how to change this conversation in a way that feels lasting and meaningful, and not just demonstrative and like, hey, we're reacting to something horrible that just happened. Look at us. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I think I last thing I'll add is just like 
don't um, like hold these companies accountable, you know, like don't celebrate them for doing the bare minimum and being like, oh yeah, we really want to diversify. Like read between the lines, be a little more skeptical. I don't think that food media really has like an ombudsman or any sort of like, I think food media needs a public editor basically, but that doesn't really exist aside from like shit food blogger, you know, and he, he's only one person, you know, like you guys are readers, like or I hope a lot of your readers and like you have the power to, um, like shape what these publications cover and like hold them accountable, you know, like don't let companies get away with saying that white women is diversity. Like that's absurd. Come on. And I'm so like stunned to see like, you know, so few people calling companies out for this kind of stuff in 2018. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah, and, like, you don't have to be mean to be critical, although, I mean, it's kind of fun sometimes, but, like, especially on Twitter. Food Twitter is great. You learn so much. You can diversify so easily. But I think, like, it really is important to just be critical. And sometimes it's really hard to, like, always be kind of, like, shrewd and questioning. But um, being critical of what everything you read, because it's so easy to take one label, like, oh, this is LGBTQ, so let's not think about labor, let's not think about race, let's not think about gender. Like, it's easy to get caught up in one, like, maybe meaningful element, and then kind of, like, brush everything else under the rug, and so just, like, being really critical, and also, like, I mean, both in our interactions with other people, but also online and in our interactions with companies as well. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of what you're saying, like, don't accept tokenism, you know? Don't say, oh, my God, this profile about this black person is so great. I did my diversity reading for today. No, like, go out there and read some more and then read some more and read some more again. Like I said, there's so many stories within the world that have yet to be told. And it's our job as writers to uncover them, and it's your job as readers to read them and hopefully be a little bit more informed than you were the day before, so... I think people's lives should also reflect some of this, talking about like doing, making it not just demonstrative. Um, if you're curious in your life and your, your friend group or your social circle is diversified, it's going to make you want to learn more and uh, insist on diversity, right? Because if you look at your friend circle or your social network, you're like, hmm, how come Kosha's views and writings or whatever it is about her life that makes her life interesting. Why isn't that reflected in the things that I read? Um, why isn't that reflected in media? Then it's going to make you actually want to, you know, uh, to demand more. I think demanding more doesn't work if you're not also like living that in your life as well. I think those two things go together. Like, who are you in your daily life? What, you know, what different types of people are you exposing yourself to in your daily life? It's going to make you want to see more of that um, in everything else that you consume and in everything else you read or hear about. So I think it also starts with the person and your own values and how you live your life. And then that's reflected in everything else. And I think that's really why we're here today, like this situation we are today, because we're, there's a lot of like, um, I'm sorry, I, the, this whole, I'm really upset about this whole immigration thing because I'm an immigrant. Um, and I came to this country undocumented and it's just really disturbing right now. And I think that there's just, we're, uh, I'm upset, I'm sorry. Um, We're not doing enough, um, even in our lives. Like there's too much of everything happening out there. 
and not touching you. Um, I don't think in like the five or six years that I was undocumented, anybody knew that I was undocumented. You don't know, you know, who's undocumented. You don't like learn about the people in your life, make friends outside of like your comfortable circle and also be an active citizen, be an active participant, like stop othering people. I, that's, that's part of a big problem is like we're othering people. And when we other people, that's when we have conversations about what diversity looks like, right? Because it's, it's like, oh, now we want to be diverse. Now we want those other different people from us to be part of the picture. And it shouldn't be like that. Anyway, that's. We have time for some questions. Uh, the only thing is, because we're recording, we're going to make you come up here and ask from my mic or Korsha's mic. So if you're inclined, please raise your hand and we'll have you come up here. Only takes one to kick it off. Well, while people think about it, <laughs> I'm going to um, ask each of you to talk about what you're working on because mm -hmm. I feel like you know, we talked about how as readers, as buyers, as citizens, we can create change. I think all of you sitting up here are working on that. Um, so we should all support it. Can you start? I think there's a question. Oh. Do you want to hold on? Oh, it's okay. All right, so we have a question. Yes, uh, so this is a question in terms of the commercial stories, right? You mentioned that, you know, their readers have to be, to be white and they're trying to sell. So therefore, they're interested in stories that goes viral. They're interested in stories that get a lot of eyeballs. So the question is that how can we make stories or narratives of color more commercialized? Because unfortunately, if the machine is too big, right, for us to put the stories out there and people don't want to see, hear those raw stories, how can we push it to become a viral thing? Is it that... The writing has to change? Is it the story has to be different? Is it, uh, you know, the platform has to be completely taken? Or is it just the editors have to be removed? You know, I don't know. Like, that's the question. Yeah, I mean, I think that it goes back to what Leah was saying regarding gatekeepers and the people who make the decisions editorially at uh, big media companies that already have very large committed readerships. You know, you just have to uh, make sure that, I mean... <laughs> To be a broken record here, it really goes back to hiring more diverse staffs and then also making sure that those staffs feel supported and nurtured in these workplaces rather than people who are swimming upstream against an institution that doesn't actually care about the kinds of stories that they want to tell. Um, and as readers, I think, like to reiterate my earlier point, it's just to demand more of that from, from editors and big publications, you know? I mean, I... I know, I'm just speaking about my own experience, but I know so many other writers of color who are on staff at food publications who left for very similar reasons to me from, you know, certain food media companies because they felt as though they weren't supported. They were, you know, pushed into photo shoots when it was convenient to, you know, seem like, you know, they were treated in a really decorative way, but they weren't actually given material support that they needed. Can I add to that? Yeah, of course. Um, I would say also that sometimes, at some publications, this is an example, I wrote for Good Magazine for a while, um, and they would do this really counterproductive thing where I think in their minds, cheap, like cheapening something and making something more digestible um, for like a broader but maybe like lower audience as far as like um, 
more easily digestible and quickly readable or whatever, they would make headlines really, really cheap. And they would just make them look like very clickbaity because I think they thought that that would drive traffic. But what it actually did was then no one wanted to share it at all. Like, I wouldn't share it as a writer. The people I interviewed wouldn't share it because they're like, oh, fuck, like, that's awful. (laughs) That's not what that was about. And so it wouldn't even ever get out there to take off. And so what they did was, yeah, I think that, and hopefully that's changing, but headlines are so powerful and when you you know change a really robust or beautiful story or profile and give it this really just trashy headline no one's gonna read it and even the people that were part of it are like I'm not touching that and so then it becomes yeah it's like you're shooting yourself in the foot so I think that needs to change too because people can handle it people can handle like really thoughtful and exciting and good content absolutely um for for me uh, I constantly, constantly think about, okay, I'm doing all right as a food writer. Like, I'm, I'm trying as a full-time food writer. But who is coming up after me? How do I make it a little easier? And to me, it's twofold. So publications, yes, do need to be diverse. Um, but I think on the other hand, we also need to invest in people of color and women of color being able to start their own outlets and have their own outlets and even currently, like, there are amazing, like, indie publications, indie food publications and websites that are doing a great job. So kind of splitting up the pie to make it more equitable and also, like, investing in the writers that we think are really interesting and doing really good work, supporting them so that they can do whatever they want to do when it's, when it's their time. Cool. Any other questions? I'm curious, uh, you came from PR, is that right? I'm curious why you decided to make such a shift and then more generally for the whole panel, how PR people are, you know, pitching to you as media writers and how that adds to the problem or helps the issues and is, you know, insensitive in in those kinds of ways. I know that's a big question. So um, I got my start in PR because... I did social work for quite some time, and I wanted to do something a lot different than what I was doing before. I did uh, PR and food because, honestly, I didn't know that you can make money off of being a food writer. Like, I, I didn't think that was a real career. Like, I thought it was fantasy. And then I did food PR, and I was like, wow, the journalists are the people who I actually want to be like. I actually want to write the stories that are going to be told. I don't want to be pitching and telling people, hey, you should write about this great restaurant that has mediocre food, you know? So that's where I kind of made that shift because I've always loved to write as a kid. And I told myself, you know what? I'm going to take a shot and do something that I really want to do as opposed to something that, like, I'm kind of good at. Uh, PR. I have an interesting relationship with PR. Um, I get so many emails Every day. <laughs> and like it, it's um, the just where are there you are. Um, just the writer, just from this perspective, um, sometimes I feel like PR can do the restaurants that they're covering a disservice, um, especially with the blast emails. It's like, why did you send me this? Like I I don't do like recipe writing. Why are you sending me this pitch about, you know, whatever? Um, 
So I think that PR does occasionally contribute to, to some of the problems. Um, and also, I think when it comes to like chefs of color and restaurants owned by people of color, sometimes they're not pitched correctly. I've also seen that. Um, I think it, again, it's intent. It's, it's tough because with PR, you're ultimately trying to sell and get a, a placement of a story, but there's gotta be some depth there. It can't just be, you know, I've, ugh, I've gotten emails like, matcha is the new ramen. And it's like, <laughs> why is this in my inbox? Um, and you see it on Twitter all the time. I have not done that <laughs> yet. I have not PR shamed anyone. Um, but it's just, it's all about that intent and actually like wanting to pitch stories that are meaningful and actually communicate the why behind why any business exists. I think, can I, I think PR, like people just maybe take a tip from a food writer and like learn how to pitch actually because most of them are way long. They assume you already know them and you already know the issue. And it's like you, it takes, you know, till the end of it to even figure out what's going on. And, and they're clearly just not very human. Like it doesn't take a whole lot of time. It does take some time, but it doesn't take a long time to actually maybe like just look at the social handle, like look at the bio of the person that you're writing to, know a little bit about like what their, um, you know, expertise is in and then pitch accordingly because so many emails I get, and I don't get that many, but um, are totally off topic and just really just artificial. And it's like, it doesn't even feel like there's a human, but it's like clearly they just copied and pasted this and that it's like, I'll just delete that immediately. If it's really off topic, sometimes we'll be like, you know, I don't write about this. <laughs> like <laughs> you're wasting both our time. Oh, I just hit delete. I don't even, I'm like, bye. Um, but the best like tip I could give is the next time you read an article that you like, just send that author a note. I would just say like, hey, I really like that article. And then when you do have a pitch, they're actually gonna open it because you reached out and you actually like made a human connection with them first. And writers like compliments. <laughs> we like they're very insecure. <laughs> yeah, we like to know that our writing didn't just go into the void of the internet, so. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, you gotta come here though. If the if all of you could build, like tonight, um, the next landing uh, site for diverse stories, um, what would it look like? Like just four or five words, or many more words. The next thrillist, the next eater, but like bleeder, you know, like black eater or like deeter, they see eater. I don't know, you know? I'm going to take that from you. Bleeder. <laughs> buy, buy those domains like right now. Like those are all really good. Um, I mean, I don't want to give like a shameless plug to my radio show, but I will because I feel like that's the point like I get to do what I want to do with that which is um 
here, it's it's mostly uh, people who have immigrated to this country and get to talk about their food and why it's important to them. But like the best part is just getting to hear people's stories. And I think like that's why I like food is finding out like what is the journey behind it and how it connects people to where they've come from and their families. And like that's just the most interesting part. So, you know, I don't really like give a shit about like unicorn lattes or whatever. Um, I just like listening to people talk about things that they care about and food is something I really care about. So getting to listen to people talk about that is like truly a pleasure for me. So check it out, guys. <laughs> I mean, same. Uh, a Hungry Society is, you know, as most of you have been on it. Uh, it's, I love highlighting people that I think are doing really, really cool work and not getting enough attention. Um, so yeah, I would say A Hungry Society is what I would create. And I will uh, plug in my own work because I'm not, <laughs> I have no shame whatsoever. <laughs> um, I just launched a website called Sincerely Vani and it's about food and culture from a woman of color's perspective and just about representation and saying, hey, you know, White men are not the only ones that eat food and that enjoy food. There are so many other people out there that talk about food, that love food, that have a different cultural perspective that is just as valuable. And I know one of my articles I wrote was about Cardi B and how her song talks about like class and privilege and what it means to be upperly mobile in America and what does that mean to you in terms of your food? Like, do you eat better when you're upperly mobile? Do you still remember where you came from? So those are the kind of things that I like to talk about and those are the kind of things that I'm writing about now. Uh, I don't have a radio show or website of my own to plug, but I will say one of my consistent beats in my year and a half of being a food writer has been writing about um, uh, cookbook writers and uh, chefs who from who are dead or have gone missing, like Princess Pamela, and have been forgotten in some way. And I think that, I, in general, I don't see a lot of attention or enough attention, I guess, um, within mainstream food publications to talking about food history. But there's so many people who have kind of like tilled the ground that a lot of food writers are walking on right now and people like me are benefiting from who did not get their due in any way. And it's so easy for someone's memory and their legacy to evaporate. And I think that I would really want to create some sort of platform that, you know, talks more about these stories um, and tells them in a nuanced way and also doesn't necessarily frame them as forgotten because I think that there's something potentially very patronizing in that as well, especially when you're working within a pretty uh, white food publication, so. I th yeah, I think, I mean, I think there are too many things to say for one publication, but like interdisciplinary and like multimedia, like having like the richness of someone's voice actually telling their own story in their own words is really powerful. And that's, I think, why podcasts and radio shows do something that, like, the written form can't always do. But also the beauty of a writer weaving a story together that maybe that person just saying it wouldn't... It wouldn't be quite the same. Maybe it would be clunky. Maybe it would be, like, an hour long <laughs> and you only have 10 minutes to read an article. And so, like, I think... I mean, my personal passion is, like, kind of connecting the dots between like ethics, like, I mean, specifically like human rights as well as animal rights, as well as like the environment. Um, and with a, with a close like finger on the pulse of how that affects people's lives and like people being allowed to tell their stories and, you know, really trying to 
look at like the niche within the niche, like the, the, what's really underneath all of that. And so like, that's not for everyone, I guess. Like it's not just one place, right? We can, I think, handle a few different places to go to, but, um, but yeah, I think like interdisciplinary multimedia, like that helps at least us absorb those stories different ways. Yeah. I'm a big fan of podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and I also like TV, so I'm trying to think, like, which medium will it be? Um, well, I'm really interested in storytelling, um, and I'm interested in knowledge that comes from places that you don't expect them to come from. Um, I love walking around neighborhoods in Brooklyn and, like, seeing people growing really cool stuff in their front yards in buckets. That is my most favorite thing. And I want to, like, sit with these people and ask, like, there's so many stories. For you to put this, like, funky-looking eggplant in this bucket, there's a story behind it, you know? And I want to hear about that. And I want to hear about the seed and where it came from. And, you know, there's just so many stories around this. Um, I want to hear about the dishes and the recipes that come around that eggplant. There's so much richness, like, just around us. And I think we tend to feature people who are, like, doing this, like, whatever big, crazy, shiny thing. Um, but there's so many great stories, like, right around us. Um, I want to hear, like, people's stories about whatever terrible sandwich their mother used to make. Uh, <laughs> and how it made them feel and why now they're, like, working in a community garden and growing kale and what they've learned about, you know, the environment and pollution and soil and water. Like, I just... I'm. I think those stories are important. Um, I want to hear more stories about farm workers. You know, I want to hear about what brought them to the country. I want to hear, like, what they actually know about farming and how it feels to just be picking tomatoes or whatever all day long. I think there's so many rich stories to tell, and I don't know whether it would... Maybe podcast is nice. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I would like something, just something that's more about, like, telling stories that en enrich us? That was a good question. Um, yeah. All right, cool. So we're going to have Katie come back up here to wrap us up. Um, quick shout-outs to our sponsors. TD Bank. Where's that Steven guy? <laughs> that was cool to hear that about a bank. You guys are awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> Minnie, are you here from Samosa Shack? Hi, Minnie. She's got amazing samosas to try. She also did an awesome episode on my show with Leah. And then we have food from Oasis Jimma Juice Bar. Um, is Abdi here? Abdi! Okay. That, that dude right there, Abdi, is unbelievable. Any uh, writers or editors in the room, please listen to the episode that I got to record with him. It was probably like one of the most meaningful conversations in my life. Abdi was a refugee who came here from Ethiopia, identified a problem in Harlem where he lived. There was nowhere to get like affordable, healthy food and figured out how to speak English and open a juice bar so people in his neighborhood could eat and drink like healthy, cheap food and has started a community center. It's like, it's unbelievable. Um, and Korsha, you're going to talk about our other sponsor. Yeah. Uh, so Chef Chris Chong of East Wind Snack Shop. 
graciously uh, made some dumplings for us, beef, pork, and vegetable. Um, and our beer is from Fifth Hammer and Brooklyn Brewery. So, yeah, let's eat. Um, and here, well, here's Katie. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Can we please get just another big hand for our amazing panel? Thank you all so much for coming out tonight, for being part of the conversation. Um, I'm really excited to share that our talk tonight is going to be published soon on heritageradionetwork.org and also on all of our partner podcast apps, where it's going to live alongside over 10,000 other episodes of amazing content of independent food radio. And um, I have to put a little plug in. You may have heard that we are in the midst of our summer membership drive. This is our biannual fundraiser. It helps us keep the lights on and the mics hot, and it supports our mission of making the world more equitable, sustainable, and delicious. So um, on that note, I just want to make sure you're aware of the benefits of being an HRN member, which include some awesome swag. Um, in addition, we send out um, insider access to events. We send discounted tickets to things. You get a warm, fuzzy feeling for supporting a great nonprofit, and we will love you forever. No joke. So if you're not a member, please go and chat with Margaret and Liza over at our membership table. Um, we'd be happy to hook you up. And uh, without further ado, I invite you guys to hang out with us, enjoy some food and drink, and continue the conversation. We have a ton of beer left, so please help us drink it. Um, and uh, can we also just get one last big hand for TD Bank and to 100 Bogart for giving us this beautiful space to have our talk tonight. Thank you guys all so much. Okay, let's eat. <laughs>